G'day everyone, um, my name is Owen and I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter four, 24 tonight. Um, if you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's found on page 1035. And you can keep that open because John's going to be talking on it later. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but in the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those that days have, had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So, if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass there, the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with, great, with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. 
Even so, when you see all these things, you will know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, friends. How about that passage for tonight? Um, If you don't have an outline, uh, perhaps tonight more than ever, you'll need that outline. So do grab an outline. Uh, We will be engaging a lot of big topics and difficult topics tonight. So I'm going to ask that God helps us once again. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us tonight. We know that uh, it is your word to us and for our good, so help us to believe that. Help us to trust you in that, so we pray that you might open up our minds and hearts, that we might understand it for what it is. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one topic that we'll be looking at tonight and thinking about tonight is a topic that has fascinated people since the beginning of time really and that is when is the end of time when is the end of time when will the world end now this is a topic that's not just relevant for christians or those with a christian worldview where we believe that there is a beginning and an end it's a common interesting topic for many people of many religions and many worldviews and so some people say that the end of the world will be when the sun runs out of heat, runs out of powers in a few billion years' time. Some people say, oh, in fact, back in 1999, that might be a long time for some of you. Some of you might not have even been born back then. But back in 1999, many people thought that the year 2000 was the end of the world. Remember that? If you were alive and old enough to remember that many people expected that there will be this worldwide computer crash because of this y2k bug and so many people in fact got ready for that they got this survival kit they prepared and they stocked up on food and supplies more recently there was this belief that the mayan calendar prediction that the world will end in 2012 uh, that didn't happen we're already 2017 And so what are we to make of this? Many people are fascinated with this idea. The disciples were also fascinated. When will the world end? When will it happen? How will we know? How can we be prepared? Well, you see, these are the questions we'll be considering tonight in this passage. Now, I have to say that this is perhaps one of the most disputed and difficult passages in all of the scriptures i've been reading this one i've prepared uh, our sermon series for this year i've been reading this passage uh thinking about it praying about it for months now and and i've been losing a lot of sleep and a lot of hair over this Uh, many commentators scholars they all have all sorts of different views and interpretations on this passage and sometimes the interpretations are so difficult that you need an interpretation of the interpretation to understand it But hopefully tonight, you won't need an interpretation of my interpretation. But if you do, have mercy on me. Anyway, we're going to look at this (laughs) difficult passage tonight. Now, to understand this, um, we'll actually have to work really hard tonight. We'll have to concentrate. Our minds need to be sharp and and our minds will be stretched tonight. So we really have to work hard tonight. It is a a big topic, a difficult passage and a long one as well. So, So let's stay focused. Okay, let's have a look. 
So now this question of the end of the world arose after Jesus made the comment about the temple, that the temple will be destroyed. Now that came as a huge shock to the disciples when they heard that. You see, the temple in Jerusalem was the symbol of the stable promises of God. That was the center of the worship of God. That was where God met his people. It was the very center of the life of Israel. But then Jesus says these surprising and shocking words. Look at verse 2. Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And so Jesus was saying to his disciples, they were fascinated with the temple. Look how great and grand it looks. But Jesus was saying to them, don't place your trust in the temple. The place of worship and sacrifices in this temple will come to an end. That is a huge claim. The center of their life will end. And so now the disciples ask that big question. Look at verse 3. Tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and, then, and of the end of the age? You see, in the disciples' minds, when they heard that the temple will be destroyed, the temple was already destroyed one time ago, 600 years ago, by the Babylonians. Now, Jesus is saying it will be destroyed again. And so in their minds, they're thinking, if the temple will be destroyed again, that means it's the end of the world. They connected the destruction of the temple with the end of the world. And so they question, when will this happen? Well, what are the signs of the end of the world? How do we know when it's happening? Well, Jesus responds, and he gives them a few signs. What life will be like leading up to the end. What life for Christians will be like leading up to the end. Jesus prepares them for this. Now, the period that Jesus speaks of is, is the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So the time from his birth, about 4 BC, to that future date when he will return again. And this whole period of human history, which we are in, is called the last days. Days, plural. The time when Jesus returns, that is called the last day. And so Jesus now is describing what, will it, what life will look like in this whole period. The disciples were in that period. The early Christians live, lived in that period, and so do us today. And so the disciples' question was, how do we know that the end is coming? What are the signs? And so what are the, what are the signs of the end? Well, firstly, Jesus says here that this period, this whole period, will be characterized by worldwide disturbance. But it is not yet the end. It will be characterized by worldwide disturbance, but it is not yet the end. Look at verses 6 to 8. You will hear of wars and rumor of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, do you see what Jesus was describing here? Nations will rise and fight against one another. They'll go to battle. They'll go to war. But that's not yet the end. It might look like the world is ending with all those wars and fighting and battles, but it is not yet the end. In the first century, there were numerous wars and battles. We know of the Roman Empire. They expanded. They fought. They warred and they battled. 
Uh, in the first century, there was the Roman conquest of Britain. In the first century, there was the Roman Parthian War, fighting for land, fighting for wealth, fighting for honour. And of course, since the first century, fighting and wars has not ceased. In our last century, in the last century, how many wars have we seen just in the last hundred years? It was the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the Bosnian War, the war in Afghanistan, in Iraq. It keeps going on and on. In fact, the last century, it's described as the bloodiest of all of history. 20 million people killed in World War I. I mean, just imagine those numbers, 20 million people killed. If there was one in my family, that would affect me so much already. But 20 million people, how many fathers and sons and uncles and brothers there? 85 million in World War II. 42 million killed under Stalin, died under Stalin. 37 million under Mao. And so the last century was the bloodiest in all of history. And so Jesus is saying, when these things happen, when people fight against people, when nations rise against nations, when there are earthquakes and famines, though it feels like it's the end, it is not the end yet. Rather, Jesus describes here, what he describes here is, is the beginning of birth pains. Now, some of us might know what that feels like. The contractions leading up to labor, they're painful, and so I'm told, and they get stronger and stronger, and they get more painful, so I'm told. I obviously haven't experienced any contractions, but I've seen it. <laughs> I, I, I felt it, not, not where it's meant to be, but I felt it in my hand <laughs> as it was squeezed at every contraction that Yvonne experienced. And so this period is characterized by worldwide disturbance, and it will get worse. Now, this period is also characterized by church-wide disruption. Firstly, during this whole period, there will be persecution. Look at verse 9. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Now, we know the disciples listening to this all of the disciples, except Judas and John, they were martyred for their faith in Christ. And that situation really has not changed since that time. In fact, if you do not know this, uh, this last century has seen more Christian martyrs than the previous 19 centuries combined. Is that shocking? You, you would think all the martyrs were in the first century. But the first 19 centuries combined did not equate to the number of martyrs just in the last hundred years. And so Jesus is saying this whole period will be characterized by persecution. But it's not yet the end. Secondly, this period will be characterized by apostasy. That is, Christians throughout this time will throw in their faith. Look at verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Now, that's hard to believe, isn't it? That's hard to imagine. Why would a Christian throw in their faith? Well, if you read the uh, letters of Paul, even during his time, there were, there were Christians who, who denied him, who turned away. There was Demas who deserted him because he loved the world. And perhaps even in your own experience, people you grew up with, people you went to Sunday school with, to youth group with, people you knew to have professed faith in Christ, but now they have turned their backs on Jesus. 
And so Jesus is saying during this difficult period, these last days, it will be characterized by apostasy. Thirdly, there will be false teachers during this period. Look at verses 11 and 12. Many false prophets, prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And so this period will not be characterized by a church that is pure and godly and all right. Rather, this period will be characterized by a church that is filled with even false teachers. Christians will listen to false teachers and will listen to what their itching ears want to hear. Is that shocking? Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen during this period. It happens even today. I remember uh, as a younger man, I was up late watching TV and I watched these TV evangelists. Many of them, if you listen to them close enough, they're false teachers. I remember this one guy, really crazy guy, but I'm sure he made a lot of money from this. He was selling these little bags of oil, anointed oil that he anointed, that he prayed over. Call up, buy these oil and you'll be blessed, you'll be healed. And I'm sure he made a lot of money from that. That's a false teacher, but people believe it. Or you go to Kurong, the bookstore, the Christian bookstore, and you come across books with the title, God's Promise of the Transfer of Wealth. I mean, that sounds like a false teacher to me. Or you read another, you come across another book, Wealth Strategies, 9.5 Steps to Achieving Physical, Financial and Spiritual Abundance. That sounds like a false teacher to me. Or Your Best Life Now. That sounds like a false teacher to me as well. And so this period will be characterized by a church-wide disruption, persecution, apostasy, and false teaching. But during this period, there will also be worldwide evangelism. Look at verse 14 now. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, this does not mean that the Bible must be translated into every single language and every single on earth must hear the gospel before Jesus returns, though that is our desire anyway. Rather, it describes the work and the urgency of the church in bringing this message of hope to a hopeless world. I mean, that's the work that the apostles began. The apostle Paul tirelessly went around the Mediterranean, planting churches, proclaiming Christ so that they would hear of the message of hope. And that work has continued throughout human history. That is the work that we're involved in today. As Christians, we are meant to be proclaimers of the gospel. And when God decides enough is enough, the end will come. And so this whole period will be characterized by worldwide evangelism. Now within this whole period, these last days, this long time, there is now something that Jesus speaks of that is quite difficult to understand. A specific and particular distress in verses 15 to 22. A distress that will happen before the end, during the last days, but before the end. A distress that is described in our text as the abomination that causes desolation. Now, what is that about? Well, the abomination that causes desolation means that it's something that is destructive, a big destructive thing, desecrating what is holy 
an abomination to God. God hates it, something that is sacrilege or blasphemy. So what is this specific event within the spectrum, the the time of human history? What is this event that Jesus prophesied? Well, there are huge debates about this. this. I lost a lot of hair on this one. And so at this point, I think it's worth me uh, speaking briefly to you about the nature of prophecies, just so that we know how it works here. Now, with many of the prophecies in the Bible, there, there is often a fulfillment, not just the one fulfillment, but a fulfillment in the immediate context, but also a fulfillment further into the future. And so, for example, when God promised David that his son will build the house of God. Remember that great promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Well, initially, that promise was fulfilled in Solomon. He built the physical house of God, the temple. But it wasn't the complete fulfillment because that promise also looked forward to that being ultimately fulfilled in Jesus who built the spiritual house of God, the church. And so it's a bit like when you look through a telescope if there are two stars that are exactly aligned, it'll just look like one bright star. But the reality is that there are two stars at different distances. And you just can't see that from your vantage point. And so in a sense, that's how many of the prophecies work. They, have, they look like just one prophecy, but there are many fulfillments of it. And I think that's what's happening here. I think this here, that there's a dual fulfillment of what Jesus speaks of. And so in light of that, what event is Jesus speaking of? Well, what we do know from this text so far is that firstly, it is the greatest distress, greatest suffering, greatest desecration ever to be experienced in the history of the world. The greatest ever. Look at verse 21. The kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never again, never to be repeated. It is that bad. That's the first thing we know. Secondly, we know that it seems that this will take place during the lifetime of the disciples. They are to watch out for it. And thirdly, what we do know is that this is in fact an allusion to the book of Daniel. We read it in our first reading. In Daniel chapter 9, what we learn about the abomination that causes desolation, it's about the temple being destroyed made unholy it will be about the temple being destroyed and desecrated and it'll be about sacrifices ceasing that in a sense describes the abomination that causes desolation now when do you think that happened well i think there's a dual fulfillment here in the gospels gospel of matthew so far in fact all the gospels jesus has already hinted at this jesus has already described that he in fact is the temple of God. And so early in Matthew, Jesus says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. He also said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And what did he mean in that passage? Well, the temple he has spoken of was his body. He already, in a sense, um, uh, re- reclassified the temple as him himself. And so, when was this temple of his body destroyed? Well, it was at his crucifixion, wasn't it? It was at his crucifixion. And we're given clues in this gospel itself of this great distress. There was an earthquake 
the rock split and the temple curtain was torn in two, which really marked the end of the temple era. When the curtain was torn in two, it meant that the temple had no more place, no more need for sacrifices. And if you think about it, what greater abomination is there to God? What greater destruction is there than the destruction of the Son of God desecrated at the hands of Gentiles? And what greater judgment of God than the judgment poured out at the cross on his Son? You see, that I think is the greatest suffering never experienced since then and never to be experienced ever again. And so in the immediate context, remember that telescope idea, in the immediate context for the disciples, I think that's what Jesus was preparing them for. Watch out. This great sacrilege will happen. Just watch out. And so the crucifixion was that great end-time event that meant that it was the start of the beginning of the end. But this is where I think there's another meaning to this. Though the crucifixion marked the end of the temple, no more need for sacrifices, the curtain is torn. The Jewish people continued to meet in the temple, continued to offer their sacrifices. But you see, that too came to an end in 70 AD. And Jesus alluded to that earlier when he said, uh, not one stone here will be left on another. And so that too was also a time of great distress. Now, we know from history that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The time leading up to the destruction of the temple was a time of unprecedented suffering. See, at that time, Jerusalem came under the brutal um, uh, control of the Roman commander Titus, and they were under siege for seven months. The city was surrounded. No one could escape the city. There was savagery. There was slaughter, disease, and famine. And that's why in this passage, Jesus warns him, watch out for that. And when you see it, flee to the mountains in verse 16. Don't take anything, verse 17. Don't even take your cloak, verse 18. Verse 19, it will be terrible in those days for pregnant and nursing mothers. And verse 20, pray that it won't happen on the Sabbath. You see, that siege of Jerusalem was horrific. A historian by the name of Josephus, a Jewish historian, he recorded a story of what happened during that distressing time, a story of a, a desperate woman in Jerusalem during that time. And the story goes like this. There, there were guards inside the city. They found that woman who seemed to have food. You see, there was a siege, so there's no food going around, not enough. They were starving. Well, they found this woman who seemed to have food, and they threatened to cut her throat if she did not show them where she was hiding the food and then she showed them she uncovered her food it was half the body of her son she said she's already roasted half and eaten half of her son and he's the other half for you during that siege it was a time of great distress it was horrific it was gruesome it was horrifying but that was the time when 1.1 million people died during that war after that when the temple was destroyed, no more sacrifices and none since then. And so in one sense, I think there's the initial fulfillment in the crucifixion of Jesus, the temple, the body of his temple. But then it also is fulfilled in 70 AD when the physical temple was destroyed. And so Jesus here was getting his disciples, watch out for that great abomination that causes desolation. 
fulfilled in his own crucifixion, the body of his temple, but finalizing the destruction of the physical temple. Watch out for that. All right, let's go on. There's more. Finally, this period, this whole period, will also be characterized by deception, which is how Jesus started and ends this section. When you see these terrible things happening, it might look like this is the end. It's the end of the world. And Jesus goes on and says, well, don't be deceived. Many people during this period will claim to be the Christ. And he says, don't believe it. Look at verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, he is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Verse 26. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner room, don't believe it. Now, you might find this surprising, but there has been hundreds of people throughout history since that time who have claimed to be the Messiah, who have claimed to be the Christ. Even in the first century, a guy by the name of Simon Magus claimed to be the Messiah. In the second century, another guy, another Simon, claimed to be the Messiah as well. And you pretty much have people claiming to be the Messiah almost every century since then. Even in Australia, I discovered this this week. Alan John Miller from Queensland. Funny things come from Queensland. He, he started this cult called the Divine Truth. Started in 2005 and he claims to be Jesus through reincarnation. That's strange. Reincarnation is a Buddhist thing, but anyway. But Jesus says, do not be deceived. Don't be fooled. Even if they perform miracles, don't trust them. Don't believe them. They are not the Christ. And so this whole period will be characterized by worldwide deception. Now, I wonder how that makes you feel. It's a terrible time we live in, isn't it? And so how then will anyone know that Jesus has returned? How do we know that the true Jesus has come back? Well, that was the disciples' initial question. Well, now Jesus makes clear that when he returns, it will be unmistakable. When the world ends, when he returns, it's not just to a, a group of a small town out in outback Australia, or not just to one of the nations of this world, but it will be a worldwide phenomenon seen by all, unmistakable, undeniable, unquestionable. Look at verses 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there, are vo there the vultures will gather. What Jesus is saying, you will not miss the return of Jesus. Don't be fooled by those who claim to be Jesus. You will not miss him when he returns, just as vultures do not miss carcasses. When it happens, everyone, the world, the whole world will know it. And so then, when will it take place? When will the world end? Well, now we move on in this passage, and I think we come to the next difficult passage, few verses. This idea about this coming of the Son of Man in verse 30. Well, what does that mean? When is that? What does it refer to? Well, again, here I think there's a dual meaning again. Just like looking through that telescope and seeing only one star, but there are in fact two at different distances. So I think that's happening here again. And so firstly, in the first sense, the coming of the Son, not son of Man to power straight after this great distress 
is something that, that happens during the lifetime of the disciples. And so have a look at verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, when do we see that during the lifetime of the disciples? I think we see that at the crucifixion again. That was the great end time event. There was darkness over the land. The land was shaking, a great cosmic disturbance. But then after that, what do we see? After the death of Jesus, there was his resurrection and his ascension into power. And I think that's what verse 30 is speaking about. At that time, look at it. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. You see, often when we think about the coming of the Son of Man, we immediately think second coming. We immediately go to, that's his return. But you see, this language of the coming of the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. And there in Daniel chapter 7, it describes not the Son of Man coming from heaven to earth. But there in Daniel chapter 7, it in fact describes him from earth to heaven to the Ancient of Days to receive power and authority and dominion over the whole world. And that was what happened during his, uh, in his resurrection and ascension, ascension into heaven. That is the sign, you see, the sign that the end has started. And they will see that sign in the sky. And that's why Jesus laid in, the, in this chapter, he says in verse 34, he can say that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things has happened. You see, the disciples, they witness his ascension. Jesus, in fact, said those same things to the Sanhedrin council in chapter 26 when he was under trial. It's strange, but he said in chapter 26, 64, he said to the high priest, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I mean, when Jesus was speaking to the high priest, he couldn't be speaking about the second coming because that, that did not take place during his time. But Jesus, I think, was speaking about his ascending to the Ancient of Days, receiving power and glory. And that is why by the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus can then say, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He comes into his power through his resurrection and ascension. That is when he reigns and rules and he reigns today still. And so in one sense, I think the coming of the Son of Man is him coming into power. That is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 at his resurrection and ascension, and it continues to reign today. But this is where I think there's that dual meaning again. There seems to be also here an allusion in these same verses to the final coming, the final return, the end of the world as we know it. And so the distress of those days refers not only to the abomination but the entire period of worldwide disturbance, church-wide destruction and disruption, and worldwide deception. And so after this whole period, this whole last days, the end will come. It will be soon. And so we see in verse 33, Jesus says, 
even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. And so what Jesus is saying, as the world is in turmoil and there's chaos, the very next thing in God's agenda, after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, after the destruction of the temple, the only thing left is for Jesus to return. That is the second coming. That is his return to judge the climactic, the cataclysmic. It will be unavoidable. The world will see it. And I think that's also alluded in Daniel chapter 7. You see, Daniel chapter 7, Old Testament prophet, when he looked forward to the coming of Jesus, again, it's like that star idea. He saw one big star, but there were in fact two events coming from earth to heaven to receive power, but then coming from heaven to earth in judgment. And I think this is what Matthew 24 in this passage is also speaking about. And so in verse 31, we see that the judgment. Verse 31, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. You see, the ascension was the sign that he will return. And when he does finally return, that will be the final judgment day. The elect will be gathered. They will be delivered. They will be vindicated. That is the last day. All right, that's our passage. I'm out of breath, <laughs> but there's more. How are we going here? Does that make sense? Okay. So what does this all come to now? You know, we read of these, even a difficult passage like this, it is for our good. God is teaching us something. So what difference does this make to us, knowing that we now live in the last days? Well, you see, how this chapter helps is that it helps us make sense of our life now as Christians. It also helps us make sense of the world in which we live in today. You see, we are now living in the time of the last days. What we do know with certainty is that we are now in the period that is after the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus into power, into glory. We are also living in the period after the destruction of the temple. What that means is that in that big gap from the temple to the last day, there is there's no other event that we're waiting for. The very next thing on God's agenda, the very next thing that we should be waiting for, is the return of Jesus. There is nothing left to wait for. All the big events has occurred already. And when that happens, it will be a worldwide phenomenon. It will be the judgment day. That is all that is left. And if that is all that is left, it is imminent. It will happen, and it will happen soon. And so how then do we live in these last days? What are the things that we should be aware of? Well, I think that's why this passage is so important. As hard as it is to understand, it is so important. Firstly, do not be deceived. Jesus told his disciples that. Don't be deceived. You know, this is the period where Christians will be deceived into believing all sorts of crazy stuff out there, follow all sorts of hype and craze. I mean, we're talking about Christians here who believe Jesus, but yet go on to believe some crazy belief. I mean, why do you think then, as a church, why we're so committed, we teach it week in and week out, why we're so committed to the Word of God as the ultimate authority? Why make such a big emphasis on the Word of God? 
it shapes what we teach in our Sunday school. It shapes what we teach in our youth group. It shapes our growth groups. It shapes our Sunday services. It shapes our ministry. It shapes our life and doctrine. Why do we make such a big emphasis that it is the word of God that is the authority on all of life and doctrine? Why? Well, Jesus warned us. Don't be deceived. People will teach things that are different to Scripture. We want to stick to it so that our faith is grounded in what God tells us and teaches us rather than what men tells us and teach us. You see? It's so easy to just go with the flow, listen to whatever new idea, new craze, new hype out there. And it is easy because it's often more interesting. False teachers teaching things like, you can have heaven now. All your ailments, all that you suffer from, all that you don't like in your life, you can have heaven now, you can be perfect now. That's false teaching, but it sounds so attractive. You can have sinless perfection now. You can be perfect in this time before the last day. It sounds so attractive. I want to go to such a church. But that is false teaching. You can have perfect health now in this life. Whatever disease, whatever cancer, whatever ailments you have, that can be cured in this life. You see, that is false teaching, but it's so attractive. And that's why Jesus says so clearly, don't be deceived. You know, it's attractive to go to a church that teaches, well, you can have all these things. You can have it all, perfection now, health now, everything now. Just follow these seven steps and you'll have it all. You know, that sounds so attractive and so easy. But in these last days, don't be deceived. Secondly, in these last days, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised that Christians are persecuted around the world today. It is hurtful, it is brutal and horrifying when you hear of the stories. It's something we do not want to happen to anyone, not just Christians, but anyone. But they happen, and do not be surprised that they do happen. The pastors that are imprisoned in China, the Korean pastor who was assassinated by North Korean assassins, do not be surprised. The churches that are set on fire in Pakistan, do not be surprised it's horrible we want to stop it but do not be surprised the christians who were beheaded in libya do not be surprised it's brutal but do not be surprised the churches that were bombed recently in egypt killed many killed do not be surprised the whole whole christian families killed in iraq when isis came through do not be surprised you see when we hear of these atrocities that are happening to our our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's horrifying, it's terrible, it's so evil. How can people be so ruthless? But Jesus tells us, don't be surprised. And when you hear that according to the German International Society of Human Rights, this is what they gathered. 80% of all acts of religious discrimination and vilification across the world is directed to whom? We might think Muslims. No, it is to Christians, 80%. 80%. When we hear that, that Christianity, Christians are the most widely persecuted religious group in the world today. Don't be surprised. You see, when we consider our life now in Australia, relative peace, 
and freedom, the things we enjoy in our country. It's great. We love it. But that is, in fact, not normal. It's actually not normal that we enjoy such uh, peace and freedom. You know, the, the tide is turning in our country unless God intervenes. But it is not normal what we enjoy now. It's not normal for Christians to not experience great persecution. You see, we only experience what we experience and enjoy what we enjoy, peace and, and uh, prosperity. It's because of our Christian heritage that gave us this. But it is not normal. And so for us, in our own context, if things are okay now, that we can still go to church, we in safety proclaim Christ freely, still tick Christian or Presbyterian. That's what you need to do on the next census now. Tick that, that, that seems okay, but that is not normal. But when the day comes, when we're hated and vilified and marginalized even more than now, when the day comes when we'll need security guards outside in a car park at the doors, when the day comes when we face danger just for going to church, when the day comes when Christians in our country, in our city, are placed in prison for proclaiming Christ, when the day comes when Christians are targeted and are killed, we won't like that, but that will be normal. That will be normal. Don't be surprised. As unbelievable as that sounds, that is the experience of so many around the world. Don't be surprised. And finally, don't be deceived. Don't be surprised. But instead, endure till the end in faith. Jesus in this passage calls us, endure in faith. Endure right to the end. Don't be blinded by what's happening in the world. I've told you beforehand, these are the things that will happen in this time. But endure, trusting in the promises of Jesus, that one day you will be delivered. One day you'll be gathered by his angels on that last day and vindicated. You see, when we think of all that Christians have to endure and suffer and persevere through, we, we think, is it really worth it? You know, to, to give my life for this that is unseen, is it really worth losing my life over? Well, knowing this passage says that it will be. And the end is nigh. The end is near. The day will come and there is great hope for all of us who endure till the end. Persecutions will one day cease forever. Christians will be vindicated forever. And the elect will be in glory forever. It will be worth it. Don't be deceived. Don't be surprised, but endure till the end. Let me pray.